One of the gems of the Nashville music scene is Compass Records, described by Billboard magazine as one of the greatest independent labels of the last decade. Compass was founded by a husband-wife team of musicians and releases records by an eclectic lineup that spans multiple genres, from progressive bluegrass artist Alison Brown to singer-songwriter Colin Hay. Welcome to The Future of What? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label Kill Rock Stars. Support for The Future of What? comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we shine a spotlight on Compass Records. It's all coming up on The Future of What? Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. Support for the future of what also comes from Marmoset. Marmoset is an independent, full service music agency that specializes in meticulously curating rare, vintage, and emerging independent artists, bands, and record labels. Learn more at marmosetmusic.com. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Gary West of Compass Records. Gary, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be doing a little spotlight on Compass Records today. It's my honor. Well, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, exactly. I won't say that now. I'll just wait. (laughs) So, Gary West, you are the co-founder and co-owner of Compass Records with your wife, the banjo player, Allison Brown. Tell me how you guys got it into your heads to start a record label. Well, you know, we like to say that it was a very caffeinated moment in a cafe in Sweden, you know, coming off of a lot of touring frustrations. We were both working sidemen with another artist at the time, and we had previously gone through that same thing and, and left the groups that we were playing with with the intention of pursuing some other interests. Uh, Allison was thinking about going to law school, and she already has an MBA and I was intent on focusing on producing records and staying in Nashville more. But we both happened to get hired by the same artist, and we went off on tour, and it was great. And, you know, it was a excellent tour in European capital cities and so forth. But after a while out there, we thought, you know, there are, there are other things that we want to do with our time and our creative pursuits. We look at business as a creative pursuit and production and, you know, various facets of the of the industry held a lot of interest for us. So we thought, you know, at the end of this, whenever the end of it comes, we should start a record label. That's the right model for all of the many things that we want to dip our toes into. And what year was that? That was 92. Wow. Yeah. Back in the 1900s. I, I heard of them. Yeah. That was a good century. So you are based in Nashville and you're building where your offices are, you guys also have a recording studio in there that's pretty storied. Do you want to tell us about what your recording studio used to be? Sure. Back in the 70s, starting in 1969, uh, this was the offices of Barron Publishing, which was owned by Tom Paul Glazer, a notorious country music writer and artist, great talent, a member of the Glazer Brothers. And that was his publishing company. And then he added on the studio facility in 1969, 
with the money that he made from publishing Gentle on My Mind for John Hartford. <laughs> and that became the Glazer Sound Studio. And then through the 70s, it was basically the birthplace of the outlaw country movement hmm. and hosted a lot of very eclectic musicians in here. Waylon Jennings, of course, John Hartford, Kinky Friedman, Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, Willie Nelson, Christofferson. A lot of those guys hung out here. And according to what we've been told, it, was, it, it really turned into a little bit more of a speakeasy than it was an office and studio, just given the personal habits of everyone involved. And, you know, a lot of recording all night long and you know, leaving the building right as the staff was coming in in the morning and a lot of a lot of adventures. Yeah. Well, it's got to be a boon to a record label to have a recording studio right there in your office. Well, it's certainly an asset. You know, these are challenging transitional times, as, as we've all talked about. And when you're trying to fund a record and put the time into it that you think that it deserves, especially if you're working with an artist that's not fully developed yet, it's just building their career, then, you know, having a studio on hand where, you know, we don't always have to write ourselves a check is a handy thing. And uh, it also really just creates a, a relaxed atmosphere for working and the right vibe in the whole building. I mean, everybody likes it here when there's music being made upstairs in the studio just feels like the whole building's kind of vibrating at work, you know, even if we're not exactly hearing what each other are doing. Right. So tell me what genres Compass covers right now in terms of what kind of music you guys work with. Well, we do a lot of, I guess you would call it adult alternative. I don't know if that moniker is used anymore, but singer-songwriters, you know, pop-leaning songwriters that emphasize the songwriting aspect and performance as much as anything else. And we do a lot of bluegrass releases, surprise, surprise, given <laughs> Allison's history with the banjo. Even though she's not a bluegrass banjo player per se, it's, it's part of what we do. And we have done a lot of Celtic releases over the years. I think we actually have probably the largest Celtic music catalog in the world, though that's at least 50% through acquisition and then the rest records that we have recorded or, or released under license or something like that. A little bit of jazz, a little bit of world music, and just a, a broad range of things. You know, we tend to not think of it as different genres so much. It's just music that we like. It's music that we're moved by and, and music where we feel like we want to play a role in helping that artist find the audience for their music. So you've been doing this for nearly 30 years, running this label, but you guys have both also stayed artists the whole time. What does that look like? What does your calendar look like? It's pretty full on. <laughs> <laughs> we don't tour full time. We tend to follow a little bit more relaxed model of trying to follow the money and trying to follow the good touring opportunities and, and performance opportunities, festivals, international touring, good venues in the States. And we're definitely way past trying to go out on the road and, and stay out there for weeks at a time to make the money work. That's hard for somebody that's young enough to do it, and we aren't. <laughs> you know, the, the challenge really comes in trying to think like an artist and remember to think like a business person, too, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, we have our role in the business, and I'm technically the CEO, Allison's the CFO. I do the business affairs, A&R, to the extent that that's doable anymore. 
in the midst of that, we have to remember that Allison's still an artist. You know, we, we say she's the only one signed to the label for life. You know? so, <laughs> so she has a lot of responsibilities. She has to think about her creative output and maintaining the conversation. Because nowadays, with social media being one of the more valuable marketing tools that we have, that's a lot of it, isn't it? It's that constant engagement with the audience and you know, letting them know what you're into and keeping them up to speed and interested to, to keep the conversation going. Absolutely. And that's the tough part. Oh, yeah. that I mean, for all of us, that's the tough part. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm always interested in this question. You know, maybe it's just me, not listeners, but I'm always interested. Would you say that bluegrass music and Celtic music, are they more physical formats these days or, or have they sort of had a digital renaissance? Are, are they experiencing, you know, are people searching for them digitally? I don't know how much they're searching for them digitally. They don't have to look too far to find <laughs> them. I mean, everything's out there. Right. But by and large, it's still a physical format, partly because of the demographics. Right. It, you're, you're looking at an audience that's kind of come up with physical format and, and they still hold on to that method of listening. You know, they don't, a lot of folks, especially on the older side of the audience, they don't realize yet that they have every song in their pocket. You know, they might have migrated to an iPhone, but migrating to one and actually fully using it is another question, you know. <laughs> right. So, you know, a lot of those folks aren't streaming yet, and that's part of our conversation. We're definitely trying to encourage the fans to stream and trying to let folks know that our music's available on all of the different platforms. But still largely a physical business. When I say largely, maybe, you know, 65%, yeah. just to pull a broad number. And it varies for different artists. You know, a band like the infamous String Dusters, which is a very progressive bluegrass band that do more, you know, for lack of a better word, Grateful Dead type of live shows, you know, two and three hour shows, very expansive, a lot of ideas, guests, a lot of cool things going on. I mean, they're they're appealing to a younger audience, and they're Grammy winners from this past year, so it's got traction, you know. Whereas a traditional artist uh, like Bobby Osborne from the Osborne Brothers, Rocky Top, you know, one of the probably the most recorded song in bluegrass music, fifty-year-old song now, his audience is older, right? And you know, so you find that it's actually an audience that prefers a jewel case to a wallet, <laughs> amazingly enough, you know. Yeah because it feels more substantial. So we try and pay attention to that. And we have some artists that are much heavier in the streaming space and closer to 50-50 physical to digital. And, you know, with some streaming-only releases and digital-only releases, of course, that tips the balance even further the other way. Right. Calling to me, she's calling to us all. California sleeps so pretty, her knees tucked in behind Nevada. Watch the orange sunrise lying there in 
giants cascading mountains in between that rocky scar holds us together the cowboy king and his golden was California Calling by Laura Cortese and the Dance Cards. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Gary West of Compass Records. What has vinyl been like for you guys in the different genres that you cover? It's limited across our catalog. It's a part of almost every songwriter, Americana-type release, any mainstream-leaning touring artist, you know, an artist that's performing in larger venues or, you know, selling 500, 1,000 tickets or something like that. That's going to be part of what we do. We haven't gotten very deeply into the very niche part of the catalog. We've got some reissues coming up over the next year from the Mulligan Records catalog, which is a sort of a mainstay Irish music catalog that we acquired, started in the 70s in Dublin, Ireland. And there's some real cornerstone records on that catalog. And those are the kind of things that we'll be bringing out, you know, that are worthy of really nice analog reissues, you know, remastering and reissuing and liner notes and, and that sort of thing. And I think that those will do well. It'll still be limited numbers. I mean, I think vinyl is, once you get outside of indie rock and more adult-oriented formats it's still fairly modest mm-hmm. you know yeah nice part of the story looks great yeah you know yeah hard to carry around <laughs> for a touring artist you know very true especially if you're flying places that's really a pain yeah but that's an interesting i mean to me that's really interesting because you know we've been just deluged with press stories about you know the vinyl resurgence and you know what that means for the industry but but really, like you say, it's it's pretty genre-specific. Yeah, well, the press says the CD is dead, too, don't they? And that's not the, not the case. Totally not the case. And, you know, I keep citing these RIAA numbers that I was shown at a meeting where they showed that in the last, how, I can't remember the number of years, 11 years or something, downloads have diminished 64% and CD sales have diminished 30% in the same time period. And I was like why is nobody talking about that? <laughs> like, yeah. that's not as much at all. I mean, that's really, you know, right. sure they're down, but they're not dead. Well, also, what are they measuring? Right. And who are they measuring? Right. You know, I would imagine that Drake isn't selling as many CDs as he might have five years ago or something, you know? Exactly. But when you get, 
you know, we're we're off in the unmeasured part of the business. Right. That's how I feel about it sometimes. <laughs> the trade organizations, aside from, you know, A2IM, which is focused on independent music, not paying that much attention to Roots music in general. And there's a measurable amount of business that's just left on the table. Nobody's measuring it at all. There are artists that we know that make a a very good living touring you know, with the majority of their touring through house concerts. Mm. And, you know, this is not a port in the storm that they're playing. This is the gig in that market right. that maybe used to have a club but doesn't have one anymore or doesn't have one that a that an adult wants to go to and find parking and, you know, deal with a sticky floor or whatever <laughs> uh, or overpriced, you know, bad drinks that they really don't want. You know, they would rather go to a nice environment, hear somebody in a in a house concert, have an intermission, be able to, you know, go to the restroom, adjust your laundry, get a glass of wine, <laughs> and have them have an interaction with the artist. Right. And those people buy CDs like crazy. Yeah. And that's not reported. Yeah. SoundScan doesn't accept them, which is a flaw, I think. And it's not tabulated by the industry at all. And, you know, it's a meaningful part of the business. And, you know, we work with artists that have put kids through college through that kind of touring. Mm-hmm. And and it's not going to stop because you can't autograph a download, you know. <laughs> and uh, and people don't want them anymore, you know. Right. That number, I believe, that downloads are, are kind of tanking because why, you know. Well, right, You, you why? just don't have that much memory on your phones or, or, or your devices. Yeah. But CDs are a very robust product and a robust representation of the artist's work. And it certainly contains a lot more information than you'll find on a typical digital file. Sure. So I think they're going to be around for a while. And, you know, when we read that they're dying, we have to also question the messenger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, RIAA has a different agenda from what the independent community has. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think also you could probably argue that major labels really want manufacturing to go away. Mm, yes. Well, they would make a lot more money. They would. And, well, they sold all their plants, too. Exactly pretty sure sign that you want out of it when you sell all of your manufacturing. (laughs) (laughs) That was my favorite story that someone once told me about some major, and I don't remember which one, that used to own a vinyl pressing plant and they raised it to the ground and built a CD manufacturing plant on top of it. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's that kind of scorched earth policy that, that got us to the place where we were a few years ago in this country where we had something like four or five extant pressing plants. Right. And everybody scrambled. Everybody went crazy trying to, you know, figure out how to press their vinyl. Right. That's exactly right. And, you know, there's, I don't know, I'm not a big believer in the in the sky is falling approach to anything. Right. Right. And, you know, and, and I also tr- just trust that there's a bigger audience than what is often measured. And, you know, there are a lot of people with a lot of different tastes to serve. And, you know, just spend any of your time putting out eclectic music that stares you in the face every day and and it it changes how you think and you know we started out wanting to put out eclectic music you know and wanting to find a home for artists that we met on tour or did a festival with and felt like we want to be a part of telling their story before somebody else comes in you know and and we believed in the artists that they were that good that we need to get in there and do that so that was part of our inspiration, but it's never been a focus on mainstream music or, you know, top 40 music or 
whatever they call it nowadays. Right. I'm not sure. Exactly. Well, I think you're a really excellent person to ask this question to, just because I, I want to know what you have to say about it. I think I probably know, but still. You know, because I'm deluged every day with people asking me, why do artists need a record label? And I think you guys, being artists first, but also record label owners, are sort of uniquely positioned to talk about that. Yeah. Well, I don't know that all of them do. Right. And I, I have a hard time with just, you know, general comments and one-size-fits-all approach to, to anything. I think that if, if an artist is self-sufficient and business-minded and creative in that regard and has a really good capacity for processing all of the steps that need to happen in a, in a good record release campaign or execution, more power to them. Most of them that are good at that are, are also good at putting together a team, and they have teams around them. And a lot of times when you look behind the sheets on a really successful DIY release, it's sort of astounding to see how many people were behind it. Right. Or even what strategies were behind it, you know, and the amount of money. And, you know, I think The weekend has even been used as an example of a million bucks spent to break a DIY release. Well, most DIY artists can't do that. Right. And and then the other side of it is that most that we encounter, certainly, they, you know, if they didn't need us, we wouldn't work with them. You know, they want to focus on the music. Right. And they want some help on the other things. And they want to know what the best practices are or should be. And they want successful campaigns, and, and so they want guidance and help on the timing and execution of a release campaign. It's an important part of it, you know. So, you know, the situations that we find ourselves in that are the most satisfying are where it's very much a relationship, and that's the basis for what we're doing. It starts in a lot of different ways. I don't go out and beat the bushes on A&R and, you know, go out and listen to, they go to clubs and listen to acts and, and search for people and spend hours online on YouTube or anything. We, we've just never been competitive in that way. We, we felt like, let's build a label that we would want to be on, even though that wasn't our intent. You know, we, Allison didn't release a record on Compass until our 25th release because <laughs> we didn't want it to look like a vanity label. Right. We were starting a record label. And we were starting it like a business. And that was the approach. And we wanted to put all the pieces in place. And we wanted to be able to provide that service for artists that we worked with. And then later, we said, okay, we can safely slip one of her releases into the stream and not change the story. Mm -hmm. Right. That was the purpose. But that didn't stop us from building a label that we wanted to be on. We always just sort of feel like if you build it and you do good work, then the artist will find you. And that's really how it works in most cases. Sometimes we find them and introduce ourselves and they're like, oh, you're those people, you know, and then, <laughs> and then maybe it, it starts up a relationship. But I think that everybody needs a good team. Call it a record label, call it a management team, whatever you want. And, and if, a, if a management team is putting together a label services model and distributing records, they're a record label whether they want to call themselves one or not, you know? Right. And a lot of record labels hire third parties for all of their publicity and promotion. doesn't make them any less of a record label. You know, so you can define it a little more if you want. Is it a full-service label or is it, a, is it an imprint that uses other services or shared services with other labels in a distribution group or something? You know, there's so many different ways of approaching it. But 
ultimately, I think artists need good advisors, mm-hmm. and they need good sounding boards, and they need folks that understand the aesthetic that's important in marketing. And, you know, the one thing that most artists, especially the most thoughtful ones, are really, really good at is underselling themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> sometimes you just have to say, no, maybe we should put the name of the record on the cover. <laughs> I have you that know? conversation every day. That's funny yeah, you say maybe that. It just makes sense for people to be able to identify it when they see it, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And some, you know, a little bit of good sense and reason can go a long way. Yeah. But again, there's not one set model. It's whatever floats your boat. Well, I agree, and that's that's what I that's exactly what I say as well. Which is that there's you know there's a million ways to do this, but the bottom line is, artists who have business to do need someone to do that business. Right. And if they're you know if they're great, like you said, if they're great at all sorts of organization and they have tons of knowledge, they can do it themselves. Although I don't think that can last too long, especially if you start to become successful. Yeah. You need someone to do your business eventually, whoever that may be. And, you know, I also just feel like there's sort of a other part to that that we have to stress to artists, which is we're not out there advocating other professions to be everything. You know what I mean? It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, you're a doctor? Great. Can you also keep your own books and run the hospital and, you know, make sure the lights stay on. And, you know, it's like, why do we need artists to do everything? Artists mm-hmm. should be allowed to be artists. Right. It's sort of it's sort of insulting that we're like, oh, you don't need a record label. But it's like, well, great, because you also have to be, you know, 100% of the time excellent digital marketer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, right. that's asking a lot of our artists. It's asking a huge amount. And, and, and most of the time, if I'm in a conversation with someone where, they're like, well, I'm not sure that I want a record label, you know, but I wanted to explore. Well, most of those conversations I just get out of because it's like it's it's pointless for me to get too deep into it unless they know that they're looking for a relationship with a label or some kind of model that can help them to the market. But when you do have those conversations, you usually find out that, you know, they've never done a P&L on a release. They right. don't know what it looks like. They wouldn't know how to read one. Right. And it's not a criticism, it's just it's just a fact. They come from a different space. And I married up. I didn't know how to read a P&L either until, <laughs> until you know, we were starting all this. And that's an important part of it because there's the misguided idea that, well, if I make my own records and sell them myself, then I make 100% of the money. Right. And, right. you know, and they only cost me a dollar to make or whatever it is. It's like, well, you know. Somewhere you've got to factor your budget in, you've got to factor your manufacturing cost in and your marketing and your promotion. And if you aren't factoring those costs in, it probably means that you're not doing those things. Right. And if you're not doing those things and you're not in investing or not even in a position to invest in, in those services, then just how scalable is your career? Yeah. And most labels, if they are encountering an artist that doesn't want to think beyond that, they should turn and run away anyway. Absolutely. Because, you know, the goal is to find great art made by a talented and creative musician and help find an audience for it and shortcut the distance between the artist and the audience every way that you can and facilitate it and get past the obstacles, you know. That's the whole goal, and the idea is not to successfully release a record, Right. I mean, most people can do that if they have enough time and money. The goal is to is to grow the the audience and to turn people on to great music and 
it's nice to please an artist by them feeling like their audience is growing, but it's also nice to please the audience by them feeling like, wow, I've discovered something I never would have heard about. Right. You know, that's, that's a satisfying creative pursuit to us as well. Artists that don't really factor in the cost, you know, like I said, usually aren't investing much in their career. You have to think about is something scalable, you know. It's one thing to have a popsicle truck and drive all over town selling popsicles and go home at the end of the day when they're sold. But it's another thing if you want to sell the best, most creative popsicle that you can make in 1,500 stores nationwide. Exactly. Completely different pursuit. Totally, yeah.
That was Carolina in the Pines by Allison Brown with the Indigo Girls. Support for the future of what comes from Marmoset. Marmoset is an independent, full-service music agency that specializes in meticulously curating rare, vintage, and emerging independent artists, bands, and record labels, and representing them for music licensing. Marmoset also boasts an accomplished original music production team that works directly with independent artists, bands, and record labels to craft original music, soundtracks, and scores for any creative medium imaginable. Learn more at marmosetmusic.com. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Gary West of Compass Records. I was just thinking that, you know, it's funny that we have this dumb argument about record labels or we have this conversation about record labels. It's kind of like, well, what, you know, what can you do for me? It's like nobody's ever had any trouble understanding why we wouldn't want artists to collect their own publishing. You know what I mean? Mm, Like, why don't you guys go out, hey, hey, while you're not doing anything, Drake, why don't you just go and make deals with every single club and restaurant in America who might play your song? Yeah, and don't (laughs) forget your samples. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, if you're trying to do what we're trying to do, which I think most good independent labels are are doing a similar thing, you want to be responsive and responsible and accountable. And, you know, artists often don't realize, you know, when they manufacture a record and sell it, that there are, if they've done cover songs or co-writes, there are writers and publishers that need to be paid. And, you know, a lot of artists don't even think about the fact that if they're selling it at the gig, that those still need to be paid. Mm-hmm. And there are, unfortunately, probably a lot of gig sales that go on where third-party writers and publishers aren't paid. But if we're trying to do this the best way that we can do it, then it's important to get that done. It's important that the licenses are in place. It's important It's important that everybody that's participating in the record is paid and that the, that it's accountable and, you know, you're doing it the right way. That's how you get to do it again. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And you you can't do it the wrong way for too long before it crumbles in on you. You know. And by finding the best way to do that, and finding and finding the way to do it right, we feel like we're creating an environment that's even better for artists. Right. That makes sense. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. But those are, that's the dry stuff. You know. Yeah. That, and, and a lot, of, a lot of artists don't realize why they need those type of services. That's, you know, that's okay. Yeah. You're there to help them understand that. Yeah, but sometimes you want more for folks than they want for themselves, you know. And you just have to ask the right questions and have the conversations and go deep and pick the right partners. Yeah, that's absolutely true because we've certainly learned you can't want it more than an artist wants it. You actually, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's like this idea of, you know, somebody, I forget who it was, said it was probably, you know, some brilliant industry legend, you know, said it's our job to get behind the artists, not to get in front of them, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and th- th- there's something to that, you know, because you've probably experienced this too. You start lining up all the pieces and setting up a release and, and then boom, here you go. And then you feel like you're 50 yards down the field and you look back and they're still in the end zone. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, now nah, we need to talk about this. You know, we need to, make sure that we're all on the same page and 
identify the goals. And sometimes they're big goals and sometimes they're small goals. And either is okay if it accomplishes what you're after, but you've got to get you got to get in sync on it, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And so much of what the artists do, too, is really drives everything. Oh, absolutely. I mean, or doesn't do. <laughs> yeah. it's it, You know, I always say this is the ultimate game show, you know, must be present to win. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, artists sometimes have to be instructed on not just that touring drives sales, but what kind of touring drives sales, what markets are beneficial and where media opportunities are and why we want you to go there so that we can make this pitch and that pitch and that pitch and and continue to upsell the story to the bigger and bigger targets, you know. And a lot of times there's no money in those markets either, especially in the early early days, you know. Absolutely. So it's hard to get that, that sort of thing to happen, but it's it's so important and it's so satisfying to us when those pieces do line up. Well, yeah, I mean, for all of us who run record labels, it's it's like we live for that. <laughs> yeah. It's the best. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's nice to see a record succeed. It's nice to be profitable and pay people and, you know, know that you've created a chance to try again. Yeah, exactly. So 26 years in to Compass Records, what do you see coming up for you guys? I mean, do you see 26 more years? Do you see just as far down the pike as, you know, you got stuff coming out? I mean, what what are you feeling like with the industry right now? We're optimistic in general because we've only ever lived through change with our record company. Mm. I mean, when we started our company in 93 and then launched Compass in 94, that was in the regional distribution days. So our first task was to stitch together a whole circuit of distributors around the country, plus the international distributors mm-hmm. that we felt that we needed. Right. And so, you know, we had the distributor in the Northeast, and we had Tower and Valley Records in the West, and we had MS up in Chicago. I mean, all these companies that are long gone, and we sold physical product to those accounts. You know, and we probably had a dozen regional distributors. And within a year, it shifted to a national distribution model. Hmm. And so we had to shift with it. Right. And fortunately, we hadn't been in business so long that we were, you know, just tonnage of products sitting out in the marketplace. We were still pretty nimble. So we made the switch to a national distributor and continued that path through cassettes going away and. Fortunately, never had to manufacture long boxes for CDs. I probably missed that one. But, you know, we we even did cassettes in the beginning. And so that went away. And then the digital phase began. And and we adapted to that. And, you know, I've had a number of different distributors over the years as we moved through them. And and we've just seen the market change and seen how records were sold. And, you know, I'm sure you remember in the 90s, all of a sudden, there are these big box stores that are putting a lot of indie stores out of business. And Everybody thought that the, you could move a lot of product and it was just gone forever. And then in the late 90s, it all started coming back when right. when the store started closing and lived through the demise of Tower Records, and yep. you know, which I was, you know, crushed over that because that's what I did on Tuesday nights when records came out, you know, on the yeah. way home. Yeah. But, you know, we just see a lot of change and, and it's going to keep changing. And every door that closes, in most cases, another door eventually opens. Right. So... I think that we're generally optimistic about it. We are blessed to have this asset with a recording studio here and to be surrounded by a lot of creative people. I mean, on our roster, you know, the, the musicians that we collaborate with 
are just phenomenal. I mean, the best of the best. And we're thankful for that every day. And with a creative staff, I love these people. I love working with them, with them all. And I love having a, a staff that the artists really like to work with, where everybody enjoys being around each other when, when we have that opportunity. So I'm not looking at changing that. I know it will change. And we're trying to get ahead of what we see coming and position ourselves for what might happen, you know, and mm-hmm. make the pivots that we need to make. But, you know, I think we're in for the long haul. I mean, it's already been a long haul. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's just what we do. You know, we, we set out to round out our life in music by doing this so that it wasn't just a question of, do I have a session this week or do I have tour dates this weekend? I'm climbing on somebody's tour bus and going where they tell me and coming home when they tell me to. It, it was We wanted a more well-rounded existence, and we wanted the opportunity to be creative in more directions than just making music. And we're still satisfied by doing that, and we still accept the challenges mostly with enthusiasm. <laughs> well, Gary West of Compass Records, thanks for doing it and bringing us great music. And thanks for being with me today on The Future of What? Well, thank you for having me as a pleasure talking with you as always and thanks for what you do trace my finger on the map trying to make out where you are you know I do the best I can take this anymore Your letters get shorter The days get longer I call across the border It's static on the line Save this heart of
That was Save This Heart by Molly Tuttle. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Laura Cortese. Laura, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. So today we are talking about Compass Records, which you are now on as an artist. That's true. (laughs) That's true. Which is great. But first, I think we should talk about you a bit. You have a cool and interesting history. You went to Berkeley College of Music. That's true. And you have an actual career as an artist, which is impressive. Shocking. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) And now you've done a bunch of, a bunch of things. Like you've done, you've done like very sort of high profile and interesting side person work. It's true. I was, you know, lucky enough to have started playing and meeting people when I was quite young. So I got to play at like Pete Seeger's 90th birthday at Madison Square Garden, which was like, oh my God, 19,000 people or something insane. And I did, I'm I'm not going to lie, like I did actually like pee in my pants just a little bit (laughs) on stage. And I, but I was doing that mostly because I was playing in Tao's Seeger, Pete Seeger's grandson's band at the time. And we were one of the two house bands. So that meant I got to play with Michael Franti and Patterson Hood. And that's where I met Band of Horses. And then we, not long after that, played Carnegie Hall. So like kind of back to back, I got to play two of the great halls in New York City with some incredible musicians. Wow. That is cool. It was kind of just random. You know, it was like being around and and being a fiddler and meeting lots of people. And it, it just sort of started to flow in that direction. Definitely. Now you've put out several records on your own. Yeah. This current one is Laura Cortese and the dance cards. What's the difference? Well, the, the difference is mostly that I, I didn't really have a band. I was sort of searching for what was I going to say musically. I grew up in a fiddle camp scene where there's lots of young fiddle players, string players, cellists. But when I moved to Boston, the scene was much more about, you know, the singer-songwriter scene. And so I kind of moved between scenes and had a lot of different collaborations. And each new one of my albums would reflect sort of where I was on my hunt at that point from the beginning being like a traditional Scottish fiddle record. And then to the last one before the Dance Cards album, sounding not too dissimilar from the Dance Cards. And what happened was I I just found what I wanted to say, which was to write songs, original music that's roots influenced, but with strings, fiddles and cellos and voices as the core instead of necessarily, you know, guitars and pianos and that sort of thing. And so I basically, I was touring with a variety of different friends and a certain group of friends when we got in the van, it just felt like a band. It didn't feel like sort of a random collection of people you hired to go on the road with. And so it seemed a natural extension to come up with a band name and to start touring as a band and also to sort of mark that distinct change in the sound to being really two fiddles, cello, bass, and four voices, all women, as opposed to previous albums, which would have had guitar players or guy backing me up or drums in the band. It's not to say we don't have overdubs of percussion or overdubs here and there, but really the the four of us string players are at the core of the sound now. That is so cool. 
So now how did you guys get hooked up with Compass Records and what did you know about them when you first started talking to them? Yeah. Well, being again, a young person in the folk scene, you know, you looked out at the scene and going to Folk Alliance, I had met Allison Brown and Gary and I knew about Compass Records and I had mostly thought of it back in the day as a bluegrass label. Mm -hmm. And then I saw that they started to have a lot more Celtic music artists and growing up playing Scottish music, I was aware like, oh, they have this back catalog and they have, they're putting out new albums by some great, you know, Celtic musicians like John Doyle or, and, you know, or Alton. And basically I, I saw that shift, but again, it's still in the back of my head. I, I wasn't really sure where they were these days. And so when I met them at Folk Alliance again, two years ago and realized, you know, they had Colin Hay and Elizabeth and the Catapult and Shannon McNally, that they were you know, the proclaimers. <laughs> they were really positioning themselves to work with interesting artists in a variety of genres that, you know, could be roots and folk. And certainly a lot of the artists are, but also that there's a home for you to expand in different directions and be a creative artist that isn't too rigidly in one genre necessarily. But everyone on their roster, Nikki Blum, you know, it's all really amazing artists who have an incredible sense of melody at the core of the music that they make. And I can see how they all hang together, even though they're kind of from these different camps that they're living in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so did they come to you? Did you go to them? How did, how did this work out? We were out there looking. We had a good friend helping us send the records to a variety of different labels. And we were in conversations with a few labels. But when I sat down with Gary at Folk Alliance, the conversation just went exactly in the direction I would want it to go in, where we were just talking about music and talking about career and talking about why we do this, what is so important about being a musician out on the road and what we value in it. And in addition to how are we going to you know, sell this record, but the conversation felt really natural and felt like a place that I would have the space to grow. And you know, a lot of the other conversations were just less tangible. Mm -hmm. And so it felt like they believe in this record, they believe in this band, they believe in me. And you could tell, you know, they have some longevity in terms of they've focused in different ways as the industry is changing and the things that they were talking about with, they would want to focus on licensing and in addition to putting out a great album and they would want to support us with our touring. All of that made it feel like a good home. And do you think it makes, I mean, what, what difference does it make to you that Allison and Gary are both, you know, constant touring artists themselves? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, that, I think that's why the conversation went well. We could talk about being musicians. We could talk about being creative. We could talk about how important community is. We could talk about how they're balancing their life now that they're parents and how it's different than when they were artists, single people, mm, you yeah. know? Absolutely. And and that conversation could happen. And when you see, you know, when I run into them or when we're at a, an event together, they're curious and they want to know how it's going for us. And they want to, they're like, well, what are you doing? And they have creative ideas and you're brainstorming with a, another artist, really. But they also are incredible business people. So they have this great balance. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what makes them particularly special. So your album came out last October. Yeah. You guys have been on tour a bunch. I see some upcoming June dates. It's true. We we hit it pretty hard starting in actually September. And this summer we're going, we're doing some stuff in the US, Canada, the UK, Belgium, Germany. And then we'll do some more things in the US in the fall. We're trying to get to all the places that we've toured, which are our biggest markets are east and west coast of the U.S. And we do a ton of work in Europe. We've had an incredible reception in the U.K. specifically, which I think is interesting because the radio formats there are still really, they're the tastemakers. The the radio DJs still get to choose what goes on. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know? Yeah, that's such a big deal because... Over here, where it's such a corporate rock format, you know, people are playing very scripted stuff, but over there they have a lot more leeway, which is great because then that you can listen to something that's brand new that someone just, a DJ just loves yeah, and they want you to hear. So yeah, it's truly a, a way of getting people, it's like, an, it's still an engine of discovery, which I feel like, I mean, I guess radio here is an engine of discovery. It's just what you're discovering is kind of different. That's true. And I also think a lot of people are using other engines of discovery as well, right? So, right. you know, Spotify or whatever. Right. But but what's interesting in the UK is those same stations, you know, BBC Six, you know, Radio Six Music has also a Spotify playlist and people are linking into both. So they're, they're staying on top of the new waves, but they also have the old format. And when you get over there, people have heard the album. Yeah. And you're not having a hard time figuring out where the people are that listen to you. You know where they are. <laughs> and they come to see you. It's like, what? This is magic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you have any sense of, you know, I mean, I run an independent label, Compass is an independent label. You know, I'm, I'm very pro-independent label in my yeah. career and life. Do you get any a sense of what's important, you know, what it is about being independent that makes Compass special? Well, I think the freedom to release music that doesn't fit squarely in a format like that we were just talking about with commercial radio. Mm-hmm. I mean, my music really goes down that line where we all listen to indie rock. We all listen to rock. We all listen to oldies. We all listen to acoustic folk music and we're making music that's authentically us, but it does not fit in a standard format. We're not an indie rock band, but if you listen to our music, you would say, huh, wow, they they really do sound like an indie rock band, except there is not an electric guitar there. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think that's one of the things that Compass has the ability to do is sort of find those little rivulets that are, where, where there are people that are interested in these kinds of music, but they're between formats and they can do that and they can find the audience and they can help you find that audience and go around the edges as opposed to just throwing, you know, only people that squarely fit exactly. Oh, I can hear this hit. I can hear how that's going to go on mainstream radio. Right. Yeah. Well, Laura Cortese, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What? Yeah. Thank you for having me. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Laura Cortese and the Dance Cards, Allison Brown, Molly Tuttle, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. 
Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week. <laughs>